Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. Well, today is World TB Day. So on the show this evening, I'll be joined by Cara Hollander, Senior Audiologist and Researcher in the National Health Scholars Programme for HIV and TB Research about TB and hearing loss. Professor André van der Merwe, Head of Stellenbosch University's Division of Urology in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences will be on the line and we'll be talking about the first successful penile transplant in the world which was performed in December last year at Tigerberg Hospital here in Cape Town. Dr Norbert Njeka from the Directorate Drug Resistant TB in the National Department of Health will be chatting with me about the introduction of two new medicines in the treatment regime of drug-resistant TB. And then together with Dr. Kukumur, MD of emoyo.net, we'll be talking about the Kudu Wave mobile clinical diagnostic audiometer, which is providing an excellent solution to help with the early detection of hearing loss, allowing for TB medication to be changed and the patient's hearing preserved. And just a reminder that there's a list of available documents for Health Matters. Just go to Facebook, Health Matters on SAFM. If you like any of those, post a message on Facebook. But please remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. Or if you don't have access to Facebook, drop me an email to healthmatters at safm.co.za and I'll send you the list so you can choose which of the documents you'd like. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, with today being World TB Day, we're focusing this evening on TB and hearing loss. And this is one of the unfortunate possible side effects of the TB medication. Not taking the medication, of course, is not an option, so we need to find ways to limit the possible damage. And joining me now is Cara Hollander, and she's a senior audiologist and researcher in the National Health Scholars Program for HIV TB Research. Cara, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me tonight. So we have mentioned this before, spoken about tuberculosis and hearing loss, but today being World TB Day, I think we need to highlight this particular problem because it's one of those things I don't think people realize when they are diagnosed with TB that this is a potential side effect of some of the medications. Yes, and it's a huge side effect. Um, It's not so much with TB, the general TB. They're, They're various strains, so we get normal tuberculosis and then some some types are actually resistant to drugs so we get drug resistant tuberculosis and these um, strains of TB are treated with very very strong um, drugs um, in order to combat the TB but in turn they are very toxic and they cause hearing loss. Now the problem with that though Cara is that people think oh my goodness well um, maybe I'll just stop taking the medication. Now that is one of the causes of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis is because people are not compliant. Exactly, exactly. And there's, there's not really a solution. It's a huge, huge problem because they, top, they stop taking their medication and then they can become even more resistant. Um, but if they do take their medication, they often do land up with a profound hearing loss. So, you know, after a few months, they may be cured from their TB healthy, but they're left with this debilitating hearing loss, not able to communicate with their family and friends, not able to get a job, and the burden of TB on themselves, on their family, it's just, it's becoming so huge on the community, on the country, and as a whole, it's, 
it's causing such a huge problem. Now, as an audiologist, when somebody is diagnosed with tuberculosis, the first thing I'm assuming is they would be sent to an audiologist. Is that a matter of course, where you would do a baseline screening of their hearing before they start any medication? That would be ideal. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> always, there's always the ideal and then the reality, you know. Exactly. So there's not enough audiologists in, in the country. There's not enough equipment. That's when the Kuri wave would come in. Um, there's, there's a lot of issues. Um, people aren't educated about it. Um, yeah, the facilities are a huge, huge issue. So ideally, we would need to educate the patient, discuss the possibilities of a hearing loss. Um, they don't all lose their hearing. Some land up perfectly. Um, and then do a baseline audiogram, see where they start. And counsel them that if they do lose their hearing, hearing, what is actually going to happen and the ramifications and disability grants and communication and, and management and future monitoring and, and the whole process. But unfortunately, people aren't educated and it's not actually happening. So people are finishing their medication and landing up deaf. But one would think, though, Cara, that the health professional who diagnoses them with TB would send them for a hearing test. It's not, you know, it's all very well saying that the patient needs to be educated, which I agree with. But shouldn't the medical profession as well take it upon themselves to say, this is your diagnosis. Now, before we go any further, you need to have a baseline hearing test done. They should. They okay, really so this is one of those ideal things again. They should. They should. It's not happening. I'm not sure where, where the gap really is but you know in in practice what i've seen it's not happening we've been seeing patients and um, we've been identifying for research purposes and they they don't even know that they have drug resistant tb often never mind that they they might lose their hearing so it's a huge problem sometimes they are informed about it and they don't want to accept it so that's also another issue on its own um, which is hard to understand knowing that you may lose your hearing. Mm. It's a very far-off topic. You know, it's one of those things that it will never happen to me because it doesn't happen to everyone. Now, I don't want people who have been diagnosed with TB suddenly to start panicking, but what kind of signs and symptoms should patients be looking out for that might indicate there could be a potential problem coming and maybe go off and see somebody about it, not leave it? Okay, so... Firstly, it's not just the normal TB, which is what most yes, people have. Yes, we need so to get that. Most people yeah. get treatment for about six months, and that generally doesn't result in any hearing loss. Um, it's only drug-resistant TB, and that's when they, they have injectables, and they get injections for six months every single day generally. Um, it will start sometimes. They'll have a bit of ringing in their ears, and sometimes... I'll notice that what happens is often the high frequencies or the high pitches get affected first. So they don't go deaf suddenly. And they might start noticing that the clarity and the discrimination of people's speech is becoming a bit affected. So they might hear people talking, but they can't always hear what they're saying. And that's generally the first sign of a hearing loss. Or in a noisy environment, you know, they struggle to hear speech with, with all that background noise. That's generally the first sign of hearing loss. It doesn't generally happen overnight. Um, it, it really, it's, it's, not a, it's not a panic thing to happen overnight. 
Um, but it is, it is something to be aware of and, and people do need to realize the ramifications of the hearing loss and seek help because if the healthcare, the treating um, physician isn't um, educating the patient, the patient does need to take it upon themselves to seek the treatment themselves, unfortunately. Now, being your ears, Cara, does this have any effect on your balance at all? It can. Um, there's not that much research, to be honest. TB being, you know, more in the African countries, although it's all over the world, but um, there's not that much research. So we don't really know. We don't, there's not that much research on the hearing as well. Um, canamycin, which is the drug that we uh, predominantly use to treat TB, seems to be more cochleotoxic, which means that it affects the cochlea more than the balance. Um, some drugs that do affect um, hearing also affect balance, but, but it seems that it does seem to affect the hearing more than the balance. When it affects the balance, um, I might get a bit dizzy, um, blurred vision, vertigo, a little bit of vomiting, but Again, there's not that much research, and I haven't, I haven't seen it that much. Now, there's no way to prevent this, is there, at all? No, um, there's no, there's no way to prevent it. There, there's a few ways of looking at it. The, the first way is to, beforehand, these patients do need to be treated. Otherwise, you know, there's no options. So they need to be educated, counselled, monitored, and managed post hearing loss. Prevention is what research is looking at with regards to new drug trials to for TB, which I'm sure um, you'll chat about later yes. in the show. Um, so that's actually, you know, to treat the TB. And then there's also other drugs that are being looked into called autoprotective agents. So they to be taken with the TB drugs um, to combat the hearing loss. The likelihood of them coming on the market before these new TB drugs um, will come on the market is very slim. So, but that is another option, but it's still in trials overseas. It hasn't even moved to South Africa. And then the third option is possibly um, therapeutic drug monitoring, which is to monitor the absorption levels and the kinetics of the different drugs in our system and to perhaps adjust individual dosages. Um, it's very complicated, it's obviously more in-depth. This is also undergoing a trial, so we don't know if it will it should reduce the hearing loss. We don't know to the extent. So it's almost a case of not making it a, um, a one-size-fits-all treatment. It will be almost specialised per person. Exactly. That, that's the idea. If it works, hopefully we'll know by the end of the year. Um, but it's all, it, all of these things are if, maybe, mm. you know, we hope. We really do hope because... That is the ideal. Management of hearing loss is difficult. Um, so prevention is the aim. So what about management? What do patients do to manage this? Or what can be done by the health professions in conjunction with the patient to manage this? So management, they left, let's say they left with a disabling hearing loss, um, impeding communication, so they're not able to get a job. That's, that's generally what happens. A lot of these patients need to go on disability grants, um, which doesn't really manage it, but it helps to support the patients. 
hearing aids. A lot of these patients are fitted with hearing aids. They don't seem to show that much benefit with communication. Sometimes they help with more like environmental sounds, but it doesn't help with day-to-day speech. And then ideally is cochlear implants. That seems to be having a huge, huge um, impact on these patients. But they're, they're very expensive and there's not enough funding for them. So, but that, that is working really well. There's wonderful facilities that are doing them. But the criteria for the patients to get into these programs are very, very stringent. And working in the field as you do, Cara, is there a lot of, or is there enough counselling done with these patients? Not at all. Not at all. Everyone's understaffed. Um, and, and it's also it's hard to counsel people when they're deaf. Mm. You know, so often left too late. These patients come to you. You can't communicate with them. So it's a huge problem. And we really need to start before, before the patient actually starts the treatment or within the first week. There's a lot of work that needs to be done with management, management and monitoring and education and counselling. We really, we've got a long way to go. I think we have come a, a long way with um, audiology uh, recognition in TB, but there's a long way to go. But at least, as you said, there's all these ifs and maybes and perhaps and we hopes. At least there's that. There's something. There is something. It's just very, very, um, yeah, there is. There is, and it's very exciting. And there's there's daily daily stuff coming out, which is really, it really is hopeful. So hopefully in the next few years, there will be new drugs on the market, and this won't be an issue. But in the meantime, we do need to deal with the issue because the number of patients with this hearing loss is extremely high, and it's just putting a huge burden on our country. Gosh, well, it's <laughs> it's not it's not the brightest of topics, and we, we didn't get to the point where we were all saying, "Oh, that sounds really good." But at least it's not all bad news. No, and it's exciting things happening, and, and I really I do think there is there's lots of hope. There definitely is hope. Um, I think South Africa is one of the forefronts in TB research. Um, we, we've We've got the population to do the research in, and, and there's wonderful things happening in our country. So if it happens anywhere, it is happening here. So it's very exciting. Um, yeah. Just a few points to sort of end off with, Cara. As you kept mentioning throughout the interview, for people out there listening, people that are diagnosed with just, I don't know if you can call it just regular TB, which isn't drug-resistant, but people just diagnosed with TB as such are more un, are more unlikely to have a hearing problem later on. It's the people that are taking the medication for the multi-drug resistant and the extremely drug resistant, or extensively drug resistant TB. Those are the ones that could potentially have a problem. Yes. Not guaranteed that if you take the medication, you will have a problem. Correct. It's just that you had more risk of the problem Correct. developing. Correct. And please don't stop taking the medication because then it just makes the whole situation worse. Yes, and then all the people around you get infected and, and all of that. People with TB, normal TB may get a hearing loss. There's not that much research. Sometimes the first line drugs don't work and they are moved on to other drugs. But the huge issue is with drug-resistant TB. Well, Cara, you've given us a lot of information and quite a lot of hope, actually, which is rather nice. So thank you very much indeed for your time and thank you for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Good night to you. Good night.
Kara Hollander is a senior audiologist and researcher in the National Health Scholars Program for HIV and TB Research. For more information, you can contact the South African Speech Language Hearing Association on 86 or take a look at the website saslha.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. In a groundbreaking operation, a team of pioneering surgeons from Stellenbosch University and Tigerberg Hospital performed the first successful penile transplant in the world. That was in December last year, and against all expectations, the patient has made a remarkably rapid recovery. So joining me this evening is Professor André van der Merwe, head of Stellenbosch University's Division of Urology in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. Professor van der Merwe, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Cora, and thank you for having me on your show. This is an incredible, incredible accomplishment. I mean, at the world first, I love when we have world firsts. And here's another one. This is the first successful, because there was another one in 2006, right. but that wasn't successful. Correct. Yes, we, we, we learned a lot from that. And, uh, you know, funny enough, this has uh, taken the international media by storm. And I've even had reports of, from surgeons telling me that they've attempted it and also failed, and then um, I actually had such surgeons today contact me, and that, uh, you know, they just haven't reported it. So we are really, really fortunate and thankful that it worked, you know, in our hands. Now this is quite, it was quite a long, it was nine hours, the operation. Yeah. So it was quite intense, and the team was quite big, from what I can gather. Yes, we were about five main surgeons. I, um, I you know, I contracted two micro-surgeons uh, that were plastically constructive surgeons, Professor Gruyere, and uh, Professor uh, and Dr. Alexander Zolka, they, they were really good with the microscope. And then uh, me, myself, and uh, Dr. Amir Zarabi, which are urologists. And then we had uh, our our residents, which uh, we, which played an important role. They also kept the spirit up throughout that long night. Uh, you know, these young young guys. Now, the patient himself, obviously, identity has been withheld for ethical reasons. Correct. But now, he what was the reason that he had this transplant? You know, it's quite a, a common reason in South Africa. It's it, it's basically a complication of a ritual circumcision. When when somebody does the, the ritual circumcision, doesn't know exactly what they're doing. They are, are wrapping a, a buck skin so or, or goat skin so tightly around the penis after the circumcision that all the blood supply is cut off, and then the penis, the penis basically falls off at the level as close as you, as you can wrap anything around the penis to the body. So you're really left with virtually nothing, and you obviously have to sit to urinate, which is at the you know the age of 18 or 19 is very devastating. It's rather alarming. I was reading some statistics that said it's estimated that as many as 250 amputations per year are occurring across the country for this for this yeah. very reason. I think we have to take those figures with a pinch of salt because we don't really know. Because in the culture, they are not supposed to come to hospital at all. Mm. Even even uh, in the in the Eastern Cape, it is known that even the, the the nurses of the same culture would actually chase patients away sometimes. So in so the in hospital, so they're not supposed to. So we don't. And the only figures we have is from people in hospital. You know, so we don't really know. And and, and um, I suspect it's a it's a lot more. I was say, so you, the figure could be higher then. Absolutely, absolutely. Gosh, okay. Now the operation was done, as I said, in December, and you were expecting the. Fully functioning, the, the the patient to become fully functioning after only about two years was that was that correct? Yes. Um, why I said that was if you look at the replant study. So you know, in some psychiatric conditions, uh, people have uh, you know cut, cut you know cut their own penis off, 
and that was replanted in, in, in some cases and reported in the academic literature. And then it takes about two years to have full functional recovery in terms of full sensation and sexual activity, etc. Et Although sexual activity does come back a little bit earlier, but I was, you know, thinking about the whole uh, sensation and, and everything. Um, and our, our patients have been sexually active at a, at a very early stage uh, afterwards, which, which scared me quite a lot because I was so afraid that, uh, you know, at the future lines of these erectile mm. bodies, you know, they could become a tear and a big uh, blood clot sitting next to that which could impinge the nerves and then impinge the blood supply. But thankfully, you know, I think we've got a lot, lot to be thankful for here because a lot of things could have gone wrong. And, uh, you know, and, and lucky, luckily, um, although we, we, we plan and tried our best, but I still say a lot of things could have gone wrong and didn't. Could I ask the age of the patient? He's, he's currently 21. But does that have any impact on, on the success of this because, Absolutely. because you know, he's this so young? He's in perfect physical condition. Mm. I, 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 I mean, he's, he's very interested in, in sort of gym work, not bodybuilding as such, but gym work, and he's fit, and he's 21 years old. And I think to operate on such a young patient, you, you, you have just such a higher chance of success. And also the immune suppression therapy, which he has to take, doesn't seem to affect him as badly as our kidney transplant patients with the same effect. And I think that's because he's, you know, his inception point of take, starting to take the medication is so healthy that, that he's sort of resistant to the side effects, which, uh, which are also unexpected and also very pleasant is uh, in a surprise. Now you mentioned immunosuppression, and I mean, we, we, we've heard about it with things like heart transplants. They've been hand and arm and all those sorts Correct. of things. You, this, the penile transplant's never been done. How did you know what immunosuppression medication to give yeah, him and the levels uh, of it. You know, that's, that's why I really employed a team of people. Um, I, I got Professor uh, Mursa, uh, Rafik Mursa, on the team for exactly that. He's an absolute expert in immune suppression. And, and I worked with him and we, we extrapolated from the face transplants that were done in France and, and in the state. Because the face has got a lot of the uh, same uh, tissue as, as the penis, actually. We, you know, the muscles and the skin without any bone, such as a hand transplant. So a hand transplant would be different. The bones in a, in a hand transplant actually make the immune suppression less needed. So we, we knew uh, the skin is, is very immunogenic, so the skin rejects first, but thankfully you can see it quickly on the, on the skin. So we, we took very similar drugs from the face transplant, and we are hoping to put them over on similar drugs from uh, kidney transplant, which is a little bit cheaper, uh, you know, because we're running this this uh, study as uh, part of our transplant program, doing the kidney transplants at Tigerberg. So this was actually part of a pilot study. Correct. We uh, we we got approval to do ten patients. I'm not sure uh, if we will probably report the study uh, much earlier than ten patients because I think one is probably a copy of the next, but. Um, the, it, it's certainly a part of study. I mean, this is so, the, the sort of thing we cannot offer it yet as a service. This is part of a, a ethics-approved study with a study number. It's audited and monitored by the university, etc. Et, et but I mean, uh, you can watch the international literature. These sort of things. Uh, you do it one place in the world, and within a month or two, somebody else go and do it somewhere else in the world. It's but just like people needed a bit of courage <laughs> to to do it, and maybe we we would just have instigated that. But at least we were first. At least, At least you were first. Yes, I got a shock this when I when I spoke to this Greek uh, surgeon who said uh, two years ago they actually attempted, and uh, you know, and, and, and the, the blood supply didn't work, and they, they never reported it, which is actually a, a pity because you know in the academics mm-hmm. 
you tend to report only positive things, only good news. Well, you know, you often learn more from the bad news than you can learn from the good news. Well, they always say you learn from your mistakes, and you could have Absolutely learned from theirs, right. you know. Absolutely right. Now, you yeah. mentioned the ethics of all of this. Um, yeah. How did you go around that? I mean, the ethical considerations must have been quite fast. Yeah, it was really, really vast. And maybe I took a bit of a shortcut by employing on the team the, the head of our, our um, ethics department at Stellenbosch University, Dr. Nicola Barstow. She is an absolute brilliant ethicist. And she helped me to, to, to come through ethical issues, uh, you know, big things like uh, therapeutic misconception where the patient only hears what he wants to hear, you know, which is difficult. There's a myriad of side effects of, of side effects of immune suppression, and we had to inform the patients of everything. But we, we're not sure whether the patient actually hears it because all he wants at his age, he wants, a, you know, a new penis. So you know that, and you know other other ethical, um, you know, interesting ethical issues such as innovative alliance is a concept where this eager patient actually goes into an alliance with a sort of eager surgeon. And now the two of them go and do uh, really uh, unpredictable and maybe cowboyish surgery. So I had to look at myself there and see, you know, why am I doing this? Am I doing this, you know, for my own benefit? Am I doing this for the patient's benefit? And I can honestly say to you that, you know, I'm not doing this for myself. I really want to help these guys. Well, that's the whole point. I mean, something like this can literally significantly change somebody's life. Yes, you see how this guy changed. Um, he's the way he walked, the way he talks. The way he sits back in the chair and look at you, uh, it's everything about this guy changed. And he also uh, got a brand new job. And I spoke to the employer, who uh, obviously is not informed about these things, but just now he's a patient. And the employer says he's brilliant um, at his job. And um, saw him in his, you know, after work one day. The guy's confident and he's back to being a male again and, and feeling good about himself. I think absolutely, no, to my surprise, uh, virtually no side effects at the moment. Of course, this could change, and he's been informed about that. But um, but, but this 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 got a complete life-changing experience for this guy. Now, you mentioned the way he's changed, his attitude. I mean, psychologically, two, two parts to this. Psychologically, how do you prepare somebody psychologically for this? And afterwards, you know, you said it's, it's really changed him psychologically because now it seems to me that he's happier in himself. No, no, he's, he's completely happy in himself. Uh, you know, the psychological issues were, were very difficult for us because I, I, I did this study and prepared it as what we call a pragmatic study. So it means it has to be applicable to our normal circumstances in the hospital. So, you know, I didn't want to create an artificial study environment, do this treatment, and then once it, the study is over and the treatment is successful, we don't have the means to do it in government hospitals. So it had to be working in government hospital. And we don't, in our transplant unit, we don't have a, a transplant psychologist, such as they, they have in, in many other units in the, in the world. So that was a huge dilemma for me because the psychological treatment for kidney transplants is very similar, you know, the workout, but it's been done with us by trained transplant coordinators who go through checklists and understanding and self-image issues and those sort of things. And with that, we actually eliminated a few people off our list. But, you know, I tried to get a psychologist on board, but, uh, but really quickly realized that a psychologist without any transplant experience is really, uh, you know, it's not going to work on the, on, on, on the mm. program because it was taking us on the wrong way. So we, we decided to do it, uh, you know, whatever worked for the 
kidney transplant program, have to work for this program. And, you know, whether we were just lucky or not, that this guy is as solid as can be, and he accepted the new organ so so incredibly well. The psychology is very, is very interesting. If you if you remove an organ from somebody or you know, something is amputated or or you add an organ, be it a kidney or a heart or, or a soft tissue thing like a penis or a face or what, then you, you, funny enough, your self-image becomes fluid again. You know, your self-image, that can, that sort of, as you mature yourself, self-image can become quite solid. And then, you know, you, you obviously, as you grow older, things are sort of added and, and, and changed and you, you adapt to that. But uh, in a situation like this, your self-image becomes fluid again. And, and what happens, uh, according to the literature that I researched for the face transplant, is you add something like this and in a fluid self-image, you cause this huge ripple effect in a self-image, which then can actually induce psychosis and depression, and, you know, you don't know where you're going. So we were so scared of that. And then these uh, primitive guilt feelings that, you know, the guy's not sitting with somebody else's penis and he, he doesn't know where he's been, he doesn't know, you know, who it was, because we obviously conceal those identities, and he feels guilty about this guy now being in the grave and he's now, you know, basically using his organ. But those sort of things never happened to this guy. From the, from basically the first day that he saw the the, the penis, he accepted it. He, you know, he actually exclaimed the first day we, we were taking his dressings off, but it was stapled sponge. On, you know, we stapled it in a certain way so it, it's fixed, you know, on the on the body mm. and doesn't move. And we obviously had to remove the staples and the sponge, and it took a bit, and he couldn't wait because we had it for three days like that. And he just yeah, said, "I want to see my penis," you know, and. That immediately I realized this guy already made peace with his organ, you know. And from there, he just never looked back. It, it appears that the fact that it belonged to someone else doesn't um, hurt him or doesn't bother him at all. Now, that case you were talking about earlier in 2006 in China, where yeah. they apparently did the same thing, that, according to the literature that I've read as well, mm. um, they had to cut the penis off again because mm. the, the man that it was transplanted That's onto awesome. couldn't accept yeah. it. Him and his wife just couldn't deal with it. Yeah, and so right. psychologically, he was totally freaking out, and so they had to remove it again. Yes. Um, you know, that, that that is a strange situation to me. Because a man has got the absolute urge and a need to have a penis, as I've seen now with with all my guys on the waiting list, um, the stress they go through was obvious. And I, I don't know how this Chinese guy could not. Uh, I mean, it was looking very bad because the skin either necrosed or it got rejected. I'm not quite sure, and it was swollen up very badly, and it, it must have looked very bad. Uh, uh, okay. and, uh, and then the two of them decided they're not going to have this. But you know then he's not going to have anything. So just for him to not to have taken the chance, yeah, that, that still bothers me. I'm not sure why this Chinese guy didn't just go for the chance. I mean, even if it's a remote chance. Mm. Any of my guys would go for even a remote chance. I mean, they even prepared to accept a white penis temporarily, you know, because we'll... we'll um, I was going to ask you, what do you do in a case like that if you have a yeah, donor penis no, that is we, white? we've had to walk with... Because the, the donor situation at Tiger Book Hospital is so that um, most of the people that donate organs are either white or colored. And due to the ethnic black culture, it's just a cultural thing. Uh, you know, they want to be buried with, the, with all the organs. So, yeah, I mean, it's changing, thankfully, but, but a lot of them actually don't donate. So, um, you know, I had, to, I had to go through this. And, and they were positive about the plan that we, uh, you know, once the penis have taken, 
that we then take skin from the inside of the leg and transplant it onto the penis, you know, remove all the white skin. And then the head of the penis, one, um, you know, one tattoo uh, to, a, to, to a color you want. So, uh, I mean, that was, a, that was an acceptable plan, but of course, on the day when you're sitting there and you've got a, a donor and you now have a, a potential recipient, you will have to uh, talk this issue through again. And I, I would say there would be a chance they might refuse. I, I, I don't know. Um, but but it's, been, it's been sort of covered in the preparation. Now, we, we hear about organ donation all the time, but I don't think people, you know, when you talk about organ donation, you think of things like the hearts and the lungs, the kidneys, yeah. the skin, the corneas. I mean, but you never, I've never until recently now discovered that you could actually donate a penis. And when you, when a transplant coordinator speaks to a family, I mean, is this going to be something that, that people would be willing to donate, do you think? You know, um, we've had uh, so many cases that said no. Um, I mean, over probably a close to a two-year period when when we were actively recruiting, and uh, you know, I was I was just wondering how we can change this uh, about because people just don't want to donate this. And, and and you know, until and, and transplant coordinators as well. Thankfully, Sister Bertha Bailey, who's our transplant coordinator, that works with me with these guys with the program. Um, I mean, she's so compassionate that she doesn't mind asking that, and also showing, you know, if the family is willing to show them a picture of some of the, the recipients to see what they're going to help, because people don't have an idea in their minds what's, you know, what, what they donating it for. But so, so from that point of view, she doesn't ask. But we've had transplant coordinators from other centres that, that are feeling, un, you know, un, un, unhappy to ask, also scared that if they ask, they take another refuse, maybe the kidneys. Or, or some other organs, which we know is not the case. But, um, but, but yeah, now people are more aware they can donate it. But, but if you donate that, or even even if you say you're going to donate all organs, you would never ever donate a penis before, without mm. knowing it. That no. have to be specified. It's not a normal donation. Mm. So even even with this case, that that thankfully and, and kindly donated, you know, every possible organ. I, when they, they actually left hospital, having verbally agreed to uh, to donate the penis and on the consent form said all organs, I got them back into the hospital. They were driving already, I don't know where, just because they unfortunately had to write on the paper they agreed to donate the penis. You know, I didn't want any uh, comebacks, any repercussions, and they needed to make sure that they... What they know what they're donating. I actually read something that you said that the hero in all of this Absolutely. Is, uh, is the donor and his and, and well, the donor's family? Yes, absolutely. You know, and it's so it is it is so sad because I mean, obviously they're also keeping things quiet, and but of course they are also watching the television, also watching the news, and they see this, and they and they actually know that their family member made a huge difference in somebody's life. You know, and I think that some form of gratification, and I can really congratulate them. Now, Prof, something like this operation, I mean, in, in the future, other than just for um, men who have lost their penises due to ritual circumcision, are there any other possibilities that it can be used for? Yes, uh, uh, definitely. Um, and, and yes, I've had so many requests from all over the world, all, all over the world in the last couple of weeks. But 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 certainly uh, the, you know the, the the one of the conditions that people also don't talk about that it's not that uncommon is cancer of the, of the penis. We actually remove the the, the, the penis. You know, and, and funny enough, the the penis once you uh, have to remove half of it or, or the at least the head part. As far as part of a sexual organ, it really is useless. 
So you actually need that anatomical configuration to, you know, to, to, to have a successful sexual intercourse. So, and that you often have to remove most of it or all of it in cans of, of, of a penis. So if those people are free from recurrent, say, you know, I would say for five years, I would be, I would be happy to transplant them. And it would be a huge life-changing effect for, for them as well. And, um, you know, that, and then, uh, you know, there's conditions that children are born with. Um, this, uh, you know, you can be born with a condition called aphalia, where you're born without a penis. I've had some guys from the States, you know, uh, contacting me, you know, they, they want to be on the program. Of course, they're never going to be on the, going to be on the program coming from the state. Mm. But, um, you know, with, with this condition and then other, other childhood conditions like epispadias, not, not hyperspadias, but epispadias, where where people are sometimes born with the bladder sort of on the outside of the abdomen and the penis is extremely short and stubby. Now, uh, I mean, it, it, in some cases it's still functional, but in some of those cases it's, it, it is not functional. But it is, uh, you know, by being short and stubby, you can actually uh, transplant a penis very effectively onto that. So that, that, that can potentially be done for, you know, for, for those cases. And... But, but, but you know what the biggest thing is for the ritual circumcision? There are so many young guys who can be economically active and who are in a complete depression if they don't commit suicide. You know, they, they, mm. they, they completely underperform economically. And, uh, and I've seen it in this guy. He was grade 12 when it happened. He couldn't psychologically cope with it. He left school. Um, he thankfully got over it somehow. And, and with our support in the last two years, he got jobs and got trained at, you know, in a certain uh, direction. And, um, you know, now he's working again and he's, he's in a stable relationship. And he really, he really grew a lot in himself. Very finally, what I'd like to ask you, Prof, because I've really kept you for a long, long time this sure, evening. Sure. I just want to ask you, in, in a case like this now, would there still be the same sort of sensation? Um, would they be able to conceive? Uh, you know, how does it work in that, in that regard? You see, those, those little uh, nerves that supply the, the, the penis, we could identify them under the microscope and we, we, we sutured them together. So they grow at, uh, at about one millimeter per day. Um, you know, but, so by now we would have thought it's the whole penis is already back in sensation and fully, but of course the little branches also have to grow and there's lots of them. So the sensation is very patchy at the moment, but it's, it's getting there. And then, of course, ejaculation is now normal. So um, there's no reason to believe he's, you know, he cannot have children. I mean, it's, of course, his testicles, nothing happened to them uh, throughout everything. So, um, and, and they're normal, normal on examination. So I, I'm not even going to examine the semen because I've got no reason to believe that he's infertile. You know? Gosh, well, f- congratulations on a world first. And I think it's absolutely amazing. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are very grateful for the step that you've taken because it's going to be helping a lot of people in the future. Prof, thank you so much for your time this evening and for spending it telling us all about this amazing accomplishment. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Colin. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good night to you. Okay, bye-bye. Prof. Andre van der Merwe is head of Stellenbosch University's Division of Urology in the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. For more information, you can take a look at the website. It's www.sun.ac.za forward slash transplant. Health Matters with Karen Key. 
Well, the 2014 World Health Global TB report has found that South Africa is one of three countries, together with India and the Ukraine, with the largest increase in multidrug resistant TB, or MDR TB. And with a treatment success rate of only 48%, it's clear that an urgent solution is needed. Well, with this in mind, the Department of Health brought together some of the country's top TB medical practitioners to discuss the introduction of two new medicines in the treatment regime of drug-resistant tuberculosis. Well, unfortunately, about 30% of MDR-TB patients may lose their hearing due to the side effects of the medication used to treat TB. But fortunately, a unique mobile audiometer, the Imoyo Kudu Wave, designed in South Africa, here's another South African first, makes me very proud, designed by Dr. Dor Kukumur, is providing an excellent solution to help with the early detection of hearing loss, allowing for medication to be changed and the patient's hearing preserved. Well, the National Department of Health is rolling out Imoyo Kudu Wave across South Africa as part of the South African National TB Program policy for treatment of MDR-TB. So joining me now are Dr. Norbert Njeka, Director of Drug-Resistant TB in the National Department of Health, and Dr. Dirk Kukumur, MD of Imoyo.net and designer of the Kudu Wave. Dr. Njeka, Dr. Kukumur, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Good evening, Corin. Dr. Dr. Jacob, I think let's just start with you quickly because I want to just quickly talk about these new drugs that are being discussed. There's apparently two that are being looked at as, as possibly being added to the, the regimen of uh, drug-resistant TB treatment. Yes, we, we're going to add uh, bedaquilin. In fact, we started our first patient... Uh, received bedaquilin as part of the scale-up last week Friday in Uppington. But before that, we, were, uh, we had started a bedaquilin clinical access whereby we provided uh, 211 uh, patients with bedaquilin. This time around, we're scaling up and we aim at providing it to 3,000 patients by the end of 2015. The other drug is uh, linezolate, which is not so new, but we're going to use it also in bigger numbers than before. Now, how do those two drugs affect people with hearing? The the drug that really is a problem for hearing is uh, canamycin. You would know that uh, we we give, uh, or maybe you've seen in the literature, we give an injection called canamycin to uh, our MDR TB patients uh, for six, eight, sometimes longer. And that's the injection that, that causes problems with, with the, the hearing. Now, with uh, bedaquilin and linezolid coming to the party, we'll be able to uh, replace, uh, you know, when whenever we pick up problems uh, or if we, we get into the history that a patient has had hearing loss or hearing uh, challenges, we would then uh, not give them an injectable. We'll, we'll start with the dark So that's how we really want to to deal with uh, the real question of uh, hearing loss among our MDR-TB patients. Now, earlier in the show, I was chatting with an audiologist who says that one of the problems is that people aren't always tested as to get a baseline of their hearing before the treatment starts. And so you don't quite know where you're going to from the beginning because you didn't know where you started from. But now we've got this amazing public-private partnership um, with the Department of Health and with the Imoya.net. Dr. Kukura, tell me about this Kudu wave, where the idea came from and how you've got this out there now. Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> I myself, I'm a medical doctor, 
and I'm not even involved in the audiology um, field um, originally. But um, I had this problem. I saw the problem. It's the most common chronic disability in the world, hearing. And I thought, well, there must be a better way than having sound booths and testing inside sound booths. So we did um, years of research, um, about six years of research um, with universities, until we got to the point where we actually, well, where I could actually write a patent and um, develop a device that you don't need a sound booth. You just put something on someone's ears, you test him inside the ward or under a tree, and you can actually test his hearing to pick up whether he is actually toxic to the current medication so that he can change the medication. Dr. Njeka, this must have been an amazing discovery for the National Department of Health because you're actually taking and rolling it out across the country now. Yes, this is really uh, amazing. You know, it's very interesting for us uh, because it it is very difficult. Like you said, a lot of these people on MDR treatment will not be tested uh, before, they'll be tested later. Yet, uh, when they start to experience problems, if the problem is often irreversible, so testing at the beginning is, is more important. But what is even uh, more interesting to us in clinical practice is that uh, uh, wave would would uh, uh, test for high frequencies because those are, f- mm. are lost first. And, and then um, it is very difficult to, to detect that because you don't need those for social communication. So by the time uh, you pick up Usually in clinical practice is when the patient is struggling to communicate with a doctor or a nurse. And that's really is, is usually advanced. So testing for high frequencies and identifying uh, a decrease uh, early stage is what we need to, to be dealing with this whole question of uh, hearing loss. So, Dr. Kukumur, this is actually, it's a mobile clinical, I keep saying it's quite a long and bold thing, mobile clinical diagnostic audiometer. So, basically, it sounds you can just take this anywhere, as you said, under a tree, in a ward, anywhere, and, and you need specialized people to operate this thing. Um, yes, um, typically one will need an audiologist to do the high-level diagnostic testing. Um, but the equipment has got the built-in automatic routine, so that the nurse... Um, um, that knows how to put the equipment on the patient's head um, and knows how to launch the software, um, can press the auto button and the automatic test will automatically do a baseline test on the patient um, that includes the high frequencies that you have to monitor. How big That's is this thing? Easy. How big is this thing? It weighs 1.6 kilogram, the whole case where it is in. Um, and it looks like a large headset that you listen to um, okay. for music. Okay. So you, you've cut out things like the sound booth and the office space and the... I mean, you you've literally don't need anything. You just need this thing. You don't need to have, have any, a specific place to go to to use it. Yes, you, you need a fairly um, quiet place to test, but that's also a very unique feature of this equipment, the Kudu Wave. Um, it monitors the noise all the time in real time. So the moment... And while you're testing a patient and people maybe outside in the reception starts talking loud, the machine will tell you that it's too noisy. 
and immediately you can press pause and you can ask the people to be quiet and then you can continue testing. That's for instance in the soundproof um, will not uh, will not indicate to you when the people outside is actually noisy. So one sometimes continues testing without knowing that it's too noisy. Dr. Jacob, I mean, this sounds absolutely amazing. And uh, being able to take it all over the place, being so portable, has it got other applications? I mean, if you're going into things like the occupational health and safety, going into very noisy offices or work environments, would it be able to be used in places like that? I'm sure that that can be done. Uh, the device has uh, a lot of functions, uh, although our interest uh, at this stage is really to to, to use uh, in the MDR-TB patients, uh, and a lot of these patients, uh, 60% to 70% of them, uh, would also be having HIV. HIV is another condition that, that really... Uh, as, as uh, creates a lot of challenges with hearing. So we want to look at TB patients and perhaps include your HIV patients. And because what is very interesting about this device is that uh, in the past, uh, our MDR-TB patients would not be tested in many places. They didn't really have good access to a conventional uh, audiologic department because they're infectious. So having them mixed with other people who do not have tuberculosis was always a challenge. Now, having a solution whereby they can be tested within their MDR-TB unit, it is really a progress for us. How long has this been in use here in South Africa? We started using this uh, around 2012, uh, 2011, but probably Dr. Kukumor used it before in the private sector, but in, in, in public sector, we started using it around between 2011 and 2012, just with a few, uh, but this time around, we got more devices, and uh, we, uh, yeah, we, we, we got uh, better plans, you know, in, in terms of uh, managing the devices, training people, uh, so that we, we, we really get the best out of uh, the devices. Dr. Kukumur, I mean, I was very interested to see that it carries the CE mark and conforms to SABS requirements for audiometers. I'm sure we'd have to do that. But it also carries the European CE quality mark and it's registered for distribution in the United States and Australia. Yes, that is quite a challenge. Um, um, you have to take all um, electrical equipment for medical um, reasons. must be registered with different um, 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 organizations, standard committees, and so on. And the South African um, SABS requires us to actually have a European mark um, um, on it. So, yes, it's, it's quite a challenge, and we got it. And at the moment, with all these marks, we can distribute um, to about 50% of the countries in the world. Wow. Now, as, as Dr. Njeka mentioned, this is being used in the public sector for the last, say, two, three years now. Um, Dr. Kokomo, are you seeing quite a, a marked difference in the number of people whose hearing now is possibly being preserved rather than, than being completely lost because they're being able to be tested at an early stage? 
Um, I must say, um, I personally am not involved with these specific studies, but okay. I've been I've um, seen a few, and it's actually amazing to see how you pick up a patient um, after two weeks, um, starting on the um, the old drugs that causes hearing loss. Within two weeks, you can pick up that oh, here's a problem, and you immediately change um, and change to other medication. What I do see is how people actually lose the hearing within two weeks, up to six weeks. Dr. Njeka, are you seeing a, quite a, a marked change in, in the results of, of people with um, taking the medication and their hearing using this Kudu wave? Yeah, I need to say uh, this is still early. Remember, our MDR TB patients they require uh, two mm. years Long treatment mm. with your XDR. So we, we haven't really measured this. Uh, but uh, we would uh, we should be able to to have some information around that from from next year. More so that uh, uh, this time around we we're going to have uh, a software that will uh, help us with cent- <coughs> central interpretation. So we will have a huge uh, amount of data which will help us really to quantify to measure this this uh, this sort. Sure. And this public-private partnership, I think, is absolutely quite remarkable and doing an amazing job of because it's it's really in, in an area that is desperately in need of of some assistance because it's it's we, as you say we're one of the three countries in the world with the highest rate. I mean, it's not good. Doctor Njeka? Yeah, partnership is is very important. Government alone cannot uh, deal with with uh, tuberculosis or multidrugs and tuberculosis. And that is why in the country we do have a lot of uh, uh, partners. You know, the the, the money that uh, that the National Department of Health used to uh, to buy the uh, portable audiometers was a donation from CDC. You know, and and part of the money from Global Fund has been used for for training in the provinces because we want people to to be properly trained on on the use of the equipment so that they could really uh, get uh, better you know results out of it and that will help us uh, preserve hearing so we we're hoping to have some interesting data next year still soon although i can just say that uh, there, there are already some benefits but we'll measure that properly from next year well, this sounds like an amazing solution to the, to a problem, but now the next challenge is to get down that multidrug-resistant TB in this country. It's not really nice being one of three countries with the largest increase in multidrug-resistant TB, and the treatment success rate is only 48%. It really is an urgent problem here in this country, and something I think we need to all put our minds to. And... Uh, Dr. Njeka and Dr. Kukumur, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Rather exciting. I've had a wonderful evening talking about world firsts in South Africa, and here was another one. So thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you Thank so you much. much. Thank you. Dr. Norbert Njeka of the Directorate Drug Resistant TB in the National Department of Health, and Dr. Dirk Kukumur, MD of emoyo.net, and he's also the designer of the Kudu Wave, which, as you heard, is now being supplied to over 50 countries around the world, which is wonderful. And for more information, you can take a look at the website. It's www.emoyo.net, and that's E-M-O-Y-O, emoyo.net. And the device, just so that you know, is called the kudu, like the animal, the kudu wave.
Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel, so join me then. And don't forget, there's now a list of available documents for Health Matters. If you'd like any of them, take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM, or drop me an email to healthmatters at safm.co.za. Well, it's time now for some nighttime music with Stephen Kirker. Hi, Stephen.